Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for a special joint simulcast of Zoom into Books with our friends at Headline Books and also the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker, maybe you're a meeting planner, these in-person meetings are, are now getting back to normal post-pandemic. Contact one another at SpeakerMatch.com. SpeakerMatch.com, proud to sponsor the broadcast today. And I'm proud to welcome in my old friend, um, David Dorson. He's, uh, yes, an author, but he's much more than that. If the name sounds familiar, David um, first came to national prominence as a, a prosecutor, won a measure of fame, at least to us, us news wonks, um, as a top attorney for the Senate Watergate Committee. And he's just written this new book about an incredible miscarriage of justice. It's called Judicial Mayhem, How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust. It's a fascinating account of David's very last big courtroom case. And uh, you will walk away, I think, after this conversation, shaking your head and maybe, maybe just a little bit frightened about what could happen. David Dorson, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. It's good to see you. It's my pleasure. Good to see you again, Bert. My man. You have gone and written a book about your last big case, and I, I want to sort of paint the background here for folks about who the case uh, involved, and and there are a lot of intricacies there, so we don't want to get too far into the weeds, but, but what can happen if you wind up being on the bad side of the court system? So, so let me start with this. The case involved uh, a gentleman named Michael Lauer. Tell me about Michael. Well, Michael Lauer, first of all, is unusual in that he encountered the court system as a multi-multi-millionaire and not as a minority or poor person, and yet the courts destroyed him financially. Michael Lauer was born behind the Iron Curtain, speaking no English. He came to the United States at the age of 15 with his mother and learned English, worked his way through college, by driving a taxi mostly, um, uh, decided uh, with um, some help from family friends to go into finance, which he thought would be absolutely crazy, but he went to work for several different large financial firms and finally uh, became a hedge fund manager because he felt he could do a good job. And over the course of the uh, 1990s primarily, he went from maybe a millionaire to bare millionaire to worth over a hundred million dollars. And then uh, unfortunately for him, the FBI and the SEC descended on him for reasons which I try to explain in the book, but are really inexplicable. So David, Michael then sounds almost like the American dream. I mean, a kid that, that got here as a, a young teen didn't speak a word of English and and worked his way up. I'm sure he, you know, he didn't just become a millionaire. He started at the very bottom in that industry, right? Absolutely. I mean, it is the American dream. Um, you know, as I said, he spoke no English. He fled from behind the Iron Curtain. He was half Jewish, but was brought up Jewish. His mother was a daughter of a Russian general. His father was a Jew who, in Poland, who escaped the Holocaust by becoming, in effect, another person. And um, the two parents met in the university and went ahead. 
And then his, that was, you know, from poor beginnings, he went to the top of the world where he was uh, racing cars with Paul Newman on his team, the actor and director, uh, flying his own plane, uh, doing incredible work with, um, the, you know, various organizations that helped him settle in the United States. And, you know, became one of the leading philanthropists in New York. Our guest is David Dorson. Uh, David's written this new book called Judicial Mayhem. It's in bookstores everywhere from our friends at Headline Books and, of course, available at Amazon.com, HeadlineBooks.com, wherever books are sold. Um, David, you had a, a long and very successful legal career, um, both in New York City uh, and here where we met in Washington, D.C., and you really didn't have anything to prove in your career when you you took this case on and then you write in the book this was sort of your your last big case what was it that drew you to this case why did you decide to take this on excuse me well what happened was that michael lauer had been uh, assaulted at he's a, a you know perhaps exaggeration but mentally he's um, assaulted by the SEC and FBI. Uh, a judgment had been entered into against him of $62 million that was totally unwarranted. They accused him of inflating the price of stocks and they had no evidence that I could see that it remotely justified it. And, um, but he, was, he had no money so he was without an attorney. Um, he, uh, someone uh, he knew in Florida who had represented him briefly, uh, knew some a lawyer in New York named Alan Gerson, in Washington named Alan Gerson, who knew me because we'd worked together and asked me if I would get involved in this case. I looked at it and decided that even though economically it was probably going to be a loser, that I, I just couldn't stand by and see an American citizen like Michael Lauer being mishandled by the government, the SEC, Department of Justice, and especially the courts. So I, I just we went in there, we signed a document that gave us money on only on a contingency basis if we won, and then with, with some other requirements. Uh, needless to say, uh, I've never seen a dime. I spent $2 million worth of my time on it, $25,000 out of pocket. Lauer went from over $100 million to literally zero. Is, is Michael Lauer still alive today? I mean, did he, yes, did he, he make is. it through he, this? Yes, of course. He's been barred by the, the miscarriage of justice that resulted in the $62 million judgment against him. Uh, he was also enjoined from participating in um, any fine, uh, certain fine, most financial transactions. And he's just living out his life um, in an apartment in New Jersey, as far as I know. David Dorson is the author of Judicial Mayhem. There's a great review on Amazon that says this just might be the most amazing legal thriller you've never heard. And we hope to change that now as we talk about the book Judicial Mayhem. And people are, are singing its praises. People like John Dean, who, of course, uh, you shared uh, the spotlight in Watergate with, a former U.S. Congresswoman, Elizabeth Holtzman, uh, who was a district uh, attorney in Brooklyn, uh, says of this book, it's an important account of how the federal court system can malfunction. Everyone concerned about fair-handed justice should read this. Did you lose your faith 
in the federal court system in, in the process of, of, of representing Lauer? Not really. Um, I was an assistant U.S. attorney for five years under Robert M. Legendary Robert M. Morgenthau. My first book was on Judge Henry Friendly, a court of appeals judge, and I dedicated the book to the judges of the United States Courts of Appeals. And I still have respect for an overwhelming majority of federal judges who mostly are underpaid and overworked. But I, I just found this so extraordinary. I, I, the, the number, the sheer number of outrageous things. Just as I mentioned, I think, uh, Michael Lauer was sued by the SEC in a civil enforcement action. Before he learned that the suit had been filed, he, he had been deprived of every penny he had, even money that he earned long before the alleged fraud. They had seized control of his two companies and put them in receivership. They had seized control of his hedge funds, the innocent hedge funds, and put them in receivership with the same receiver that was a receiver for his companies. What this meant, and it was talking about before he learned about the case was being filed, that the same receiver, a lawyer in Florida, with no experience running companies, was gonna be on both sides of the transactions. He was going to be the receiver for the companies that were sued along with Michael Lauer, the management companies, and the, and the receiver for the hedge funds, the investors who were supposedly defrauded. So that we had an impossible situation, which Michael Lauer, to his credit, repeatedly brought up to the courts. And they came up with some convoluted explanations that there's really no conflict here because he only represents one person. Uh, you know, it was it was it was bizarre, and it kept getting worse and worse. It was unbelievable to somebody who, had, by that point, had spent fifty years practicing law, and had worked as an assistant U.S. attorney and assistant chief counsel of the Senate Watergate Committee. And it's a really an incredible story. I try to make it as accessible as possible, and the people who are not lawyers have read it and told me they they followed it and were appalled by it, and. Um, I was appalled by it. I spent five years trying to set aside the $62 million judgment. And it's no secret that I lost badly. Yeah, it's uh, this did not come out as well as one would have expected. Judicial Mayhem is the book. David Dorson is the author. If you love legal thrillers, this one may put John Grisham or Daniel Valdacci to shame. I mean, this is real life stuff, but it reads like something that's made up. Well, it's, it, I, I wouldn't, I, I actually have written a novel and I wouldn't even try to make up a story like this. Uh, what is astonishing is, as I told you, the, that that was all before he was sued and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Not only did they deprive him of an attorney, they told him under a court, a judge, district judge told him he could not interview witnesses. So here's a man who's had no legal background, grew up in, actually Poland, uh, deprived of an attorney, fighting both the, uh, US, the SEC and the receiver, who could, was now told he could not defend himself properly. I mean, there, it, it, is, it is incredible. And as I said, I would not have dared to write a novel with all this in it. It was the Chinese water torture uh, 
for Michael Lauer and for me as I got into it and familiarized myself with it. Um, and I, I just have to emphasize, I've never seen anything remotely like this. And it was two federal district judges and um, six or seven court of appeals judges because we kept trying to get the, the court of appeals to, re to reverse the judgment. And I, as I said, I was totally unsuccessful. I've got to ask you this, and you're an attorney. Clearly, I am not. But you, you mentioned something there uh, that that he had to he had to represent himself. And any Yahoo like me who's watched an episode of Law and Order, you know, they read the the rights, and one of the first things you hear the the officer tell the purpose, you've got a right to an attorney. You know, without getting too far into into the legalese of it, David, how does that work? Where they say you you don't even get counsel. Well, what happens is this. First of all. This was a civil enforcement case, not a criminal case. In a criminal case, he actually he was later prosecuted, which is another horrendous uh, thing that happened to him. And he was acquitted, I should uh, add, even with, and he had no money, so he had a public defender in a complex SEC case, and he got acquitted. Wow! In in criminal cases, you get an attorney, some attorney, sometimes good, sometimes bad. In civil cases, it is much much more complicated, and trying to maybe oversimplify it, he was he should have been able to use his own untainted money, the money that he acquired before he alleged for it, which was not until around 2000 when they said it began and couldn't give a reason why a well a man of his wealth would suddenly commit crimes. Then he, but be that as it may, um, the judge relying on a narcotics case, a horrendous narcotics case, said, well, we, the, all the money's intermingled and therefore we won't try to separate it and uh, goodbye, you don't get any of the money and you have to represent yourself. Incredible. Uh, the book is Judicial Mayhem. Uh, if you love legal thrillers, you've got to pick this one up. It's, it's a real life account of a gentleman named Michael Lauer. Uh, John Dean, who was a former counsel to, to President Nixon, made famous in the Watergate trial, uh, and himself, a very accomplished author, says this about the book. Michael Lauer's dream and the American dream we talked about became a nightmare and overzealous Securities and Exchange Commission and misguided Department of Justice targeted him. The American judicial system failed Michael Lauer by trashing the rule of law. David, there may be folks who are, are listening in uh, to our conversation about Michael Lauer right now saying, you know what? Rich guy, multimillionaire hedge fund manager. Eh, so what? You know, rich guy gets what's coming to him, but it didn't just affect him. It affected an awful lot of people. Absolutely. And uh, it affected everyone who worked for him, even though none of them was ever sued by the SEC. It affected people who entrusted him with money over a billion dollars he had under management and that's a billion with a b billion with a b and they lost something like 95 percent of their uh, wealth in investment investment as it became greater greater because he was a great hedge fund manager and won awards and in fact there's a book uh, about uh, various people on wall street uh, investment advisors and the like with a chapter on him that praised he, he had we won awards for being successful and then they said because what he would do just briefly was that he would 
find startups and invest in them and then take uh, and buy up their stock, which he had arranged to be uh, purchased at whatever low price he could get it. And he would do this. And he, his record was, if you look at it like a football team, not great. And, you know, he, he probably lost more than he won. But when he won, it was something like a um, Facebook or Microsoft. Or not. When he won, he won big, really he big. He won big. He won big. And he was making, no, he, he was making profits when no one else was making profits. And the SEC used the fact that he was so good and making profits when no one else was making profits as evidence that he was a crook. And the judge accepted it on their word without any evidence of it, even though they were required to do the SEC had the burden of proof. Is there a reason in your mind why, uh, I mean, it almost sounds conspiratorial, why they went after him so hard? Was he, for example, was is Michael Lauer, and I don't want to overstep bounds here, was he an unlikable guy? Did they need a villain? I mean, wh- why? Why did they come after him so hard? I think on the, you know, again, it's speculation. I, I, I try to speak to people all over, judges, uh, prosecutors, the SEC people, no one would talk to me. So I, I was uh, I was shut out of getting anyone's explanation. I believe that they were over, that what had happened was this, that a sting had been set up called Bermuda Short uh, that to, to entice corrupt people uh, in the financial world to uh, invest in crooked enterprises and Lauer turned them down. Some people who knew Lauer, they turned him down multiple, he turned them down multiple times. I mean, there's no evidence that he's a bad person, but be that as it may, other people who knew Lauer, and including some who were consultants, were trapped and they to make a deal and save their skins, they made up things about Lauer. And the FBI looked into it, couldn't prove anything. So they gave it to the SEC through irregular channels rather than give it, send it back to Washington and have the Washington deal with the SEC nationally, the Miami-based or Florida-based FBI, what they did was they just called up the SEC, local SEC in Miami and the Miami SEC did it all on its own. And they had were totally inexperienced, inept, um, gullible, um, I, I could, I, I can go on for the adjectives, but that I think was the case on the um, on the ground floor with the SEC. They just thought Michael Lauer was a crook. They were dying for a big case. They called it one of the biggest frauds in the history of Florida and the world, maybe. And um, but when it got to the district judges, they were one. The first district judge, I, I think, was just a. a, a unable to accept Lauer as a person and right. was overwhelmed by these false things that the SEC was telling him. The second district judge, I think was just way in over his head. When it got to the court of appeals, and, and I think they just threw up their hands and did whatever they were asked to do by the SEC or the Department of Justice. On the court of appeals level, I think it's different. Uh, the Court of Appeals was faced with a situation uh, seven years, six or seven years after the case was filed, 
where there was a $62 billion judge, million, sorry, million dollar judgment against Lauer. The hedge funds in the meantime had been virtually destroyed. And the Court of Appeals, I believe, felt one that there was no way, if they, if they reversed, there was nothing they could do about it. I mean, it's just like he was executed financially. Right. They said he was a mistake. What are we going to do about it? There was just no way to correct it. The other thing is that these zealous, overzealous SEC had painted such a negative picture of Lauer and a fight, a disagreement between Lauer and me came out into the open over a brief I wanted to file, which in which he accused me of something that I, wrong that I didn't do. So to try to simplify it, uh, there were two problems. One was that there was no way of correcting the mistakes that he had been made in the district court because the money, the uh, receiver had sold off all of the assets of the hedge funds at ridiculously low prices. And it spent ultimately tens of millions of dollars of, this, of the hedge funds money to find out, to try to prove that Lauer was guilty. Um, the other thing was that there may have been personal animus against uh, Lauer and against me that contributed to the uh, inexplicable actions of the Court of Appeals in uh, throwing out the case. And, they, and ultimately, they, the last time around, they threw out the case on their own motion. In other words, it's not unusual for a party in a court of appeals, it, I mean, it happens sometimes, right? it's not the usual case, to move to dismiss a case. Well, the court of appeals dismissed it without being asked to dismiss it. And again, uh, I, I don't want to attribute evil motives. There certainly was no bribery or anything like that. And there's no, absolutely no suggestion. These were competent and I believe um, honest in the sense of the monetary sense of uh, judges, but they acted so outrageously that I, I just gasped as I as I went along. I literally gasped. Do you have any idea how many when you put together, you know, his employees and and people who had their life savings, you know, under Michael Lauer? How many people, average Americans, just you know, lost it all because of this, you know, the government going after Lauer? Are we talking 10 people? Are we talking 100 people? Are talking more? Well, there, were, there were probably close to 10 who worked for him. And there were literally hundreds of investors. Uh, some were, you know, were really big shots, which like uh, Morgan Stanley invested money with him, which, though, and, and there were never were complaints about Lauer. That's another thing. Morgan Stanley, for example, and other large entities along with certain individuals invested. They would never complain, they were happy, he was oversubscribed. No one thought he had done anything wrong. He had been doing the same thing for 10 or 15 years. And no one could explain why suddenly in the year 2000, he had, uh, Lauer had become uh, a crook for relatively small potatoes. I mean, uh, he was getting a percentage of the uh, value of the hedge funds as, and, and the increase in value of the hedge funds. But, but by that time, he was a multi-multi-millionaire and, and they, they never could come up with an explanation. 
Most folks, David, uh, probably are, are comparing in their heads right now uh, th this case to the one that got all the press, the Bernie Madoff case. Right. And I wonder if you could sort of compare and contrast Madoff and Lauer and uh, both as, as people, but also how those cases uh, laid out. Well, Bernie Madoff was a self-admitted crook. He pleaded guilty of billions of dollars of outrageous uh, Ponzi scheme. And uh, Michael Lauer was an honest person who started out with nothing. And as I say, and I, I try to show it, that there was no proof that he did anything wrong. And I personally believe he did nothing illegal. Um, Lauer, uh, I think, antagonized uh, the judges in both in the, in the district court by being aggressively, by being aggressive, which I would, I, I can't say I blame him. He well, was, yeah, the guy's fighting for his life. He was fighting yeah. for his life. He, he made motion after motion for money for an attorney, for, for support. His mother, who lived with him, had multiple illnesses. She was uh, over 80 years old. And at one point, Lauer said, she suffered a stroke. We need the money. I need some of the funds to get, get her daily care because I've been doing it. And I, I just can't do it because I'm also defending myself in this case. And the judge dismisses, well, there's nothing new here, denied. And there was a, and in, especially in the Court of Appeals, they wouldn't really deal with my arguments. In the, the Court of Appeals, many of the arguments were mine. In the district court, in the first round, when the judgment was entered against Lauer, he was there alone. He said, after I lost the first time in the Court of Appeals, I went back to the district court to try to get it reversed. But nothing worked. I mean, it was just, it was at, at one point, and actually I didn't put this in the book because there was so much. The uh, SEC or receiver tried to enjoin me from filing more motions. And the only thing he could cite was that I filed a lot of motions. Of course I filed a lot of motions. There were a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and, and instead of, I mean, he cited no authority. And the district judge, rather than throw it out, denied it without prejudice, saying it's now before the Court of Appeals, I don't want to interfere, thereby giving it some credibility. Um, and as I said, there was no authority. They didn't deal with any single argument of mine. I'm not saying I did a great job. I have no idea how good a job I did. All I can say is I tried hard um, and um, I think I was right, but I lost. David Dorson's book is Judicial Mayhem. And it's very aptly titled. So just an amazing story that, that uh, the hair is kind of standing up on my arms right now as I think about this. And, and you put yourself in, in this guy's place, and it's a scary place to be. Um, I should probably point out to people that, that should they think in listening to this conversation with you that you're the guy that, that you know, is always, uh, you know, in there on the defense and you're, you know, defending these white-collar criminals and bad guys – Early in your career, you were the guy that went after the bad guys. Absolutely. I was a prosecutor for five years. And if I had a specialty in uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office, it was going after in, uh, criminal proceeding as criminal tax cases. I know my mentality is more of a prosecutor than a defense attorney. And I felt more or less like a prosecutor 
in in Watergate, we were trying to find out what had happened uh, in, in, in after the break-in and, and what became a, a massive cover-up. So uh, I, I come to these things more with a prosecutorial state of mind. And I think people sh should read this because the federal courts, by and large, are terrific. They have good judges. Uh, sometimes they are ideologues, as with, uh, in my opinion, in recent years. But by and large, these are competent, bright, conscientious judges who do a good job and are overworked and underpaid. And yet this happened to somebody who was a multi-multi-millionaire. And it, it's chilling. And one of the problems I dealt with and or try to deal with in my mind and to some extent in the book is, is what can you do about it? And perhaps the only, the main thing you can do is make sure people are aware this can happen. Keep in mind, I've worked four or five years on a case, lost badly, couldn't do a thing for this poor man. And I, no, I, I really, it's hard to know what I could have done more. Someone else may know. But you have to expose these things. They have to see the light. People have to read about them and understand what really can go wrong and keep their eyes open for it. It's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Going to court is not, uh, it's not like Perry Mason. It's uh, quite a bit different when you're actually in there mixing it up. Um, I, I wonder, David, if, if as you look back on that, if you were to find yourself in a situation like that, or someone who's listening finds themselves in a situation, you know, what are the takeaways? What did you learn from this whole thing that, that might be applicable <laughs> moving forward if you find yourself on the, the bad end of this kind of deal? Well, that's a, that's a very good and very tough question. <clears throat> the mo perhaps the most important thing is just to recognize what can happen, that you cannot assume that everyone's going to behave as they do in, in Perry Mason or some of the other fanciful stories, that these judges are human, that you, you know, and at times you're going to lose, and inexplicably. I mean, there's something called an innocence project which is reviews cases in which innocent people were convicted and in some cases sentenced to death. And all you can do is shine light on it, be conscious of it, talk about it, try to get help, uh, try to get a, a good lawyer uh, and, and, and just pray that you don't run into a, a judge like he ran into, like Lauer ran into. Yeah, you, um... You're pretty upfront about saying, and your exact words, I think, were, I lost and I lost badly. Do you have any regrets that this was your last big case and that you, that you took this on to begin with? Well, you I, wish I, you wouldn't have. I, I know. Obviously, I wish I, things had gone better. Uh, as I said, I'm not sure what I could have done that would have made a significant difference. In, but I, I don't regret it because. For one thing, people don't hear about cases like this. There are, I, I just don't know of any book like it. Lawyers don't write about cases they lose. I mean, it's, right. it's not good for business, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> but so that I, I feel that I, I did something constructive. As I said, it was very expensive to me, very debilitating, very frustrating. But I'm glad I did it because 
no, I would do it again. I would do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I would do it again. And maybe something a little different here, a little different there in retrospect. But I was doing it essentially by myself. And I was doing the best I could. And in some places, I can say I did a good job. In other cases, I just don't know. And I, I would, whether somebody else could have won, well, the short answer is I don't think anyone else would have taken the case. You have to be crazy to take the case. So does that make you crazy? That's the question. Well, I'll leave that for others to say. <laughs> Our guest is David Dorsen. This incredible book is Judicial Mayhem. Um, and you did something really unique with this book. Uh, you teamed up with your publisher, Headline Books, and you talked about wanting to, to let people know what could happen. You took what I think is probably a pretty unprecedented step in mailing a copy of this book. And if I get this wrong, tell me, but you mail one to every federal judge in America. No, no, I have to say that that's a little overstated. I sent it to every court of appeal, federal court of appeals judge in the hundreds. I sent it to the chief judge of every district court, where there were many more hundred, paying out of my own pocket for the um, books that I was sent out and the postage and, and everything else. So I sent out three, 400 books to judges. I sent it to other people, but I felt that um, perhaps the best way of getting the story across and the most important audience for the story were the judges themselves. Um, you know, I, 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 I was throwing in a sense good money after bad after I lost the case, but uh, I was prepared to do something because not only did I spend a couple of years writing the book and it's deeply uh, uh, sourced, uh, you know, just about everything I say is a, an endnote which says uh, document 2127, page six, and there were that many documents in the case files. But I, I, I just wanted to get it across and I thought long and hard about to who to send it. And I said, you know, this is the audience that wants it most and maybe they'll talk about it with their friends and lawyer friends and all that. But it was something I, I, I did and cost me more thousands of dollars. David Dorson is the author of Judicial Mayhem. Um, I want to ask you about something that, that doesn't have to do with this book. I, I found it fascinating. I, I was reading about you. You, did I get this right? You filed a libel suit against G. Gordon Liddy? Um, well, what happened, I, 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 yes and no. I, I, I worked on a libel suit. What happened was that John Dean and Maureen Dean, well, um, well there were two suits. The first one, John Dean and Maureen Dean sued Liddy and others for Liddy's and others in a book's allegations that John Dean was really the person who orchestrated the break-in of the Democratic National Headquarters, which was false, and other outrageous things that there was a prostitution ring going on in, among the Democratic National Committee and the like. Um, and uh, I joined that when the case was transferred from the West Coast to the East Coast. And uh, I was sort of the East Coast lawyer, and I took depositions of people like Liddy and Charles Colson and others. Uh, the other case was also filed by somebody else in my, in my office, and I took it over, where a secretary in the Democratic National Committee who was accused of being the scheduler for the prostitutes and other things uh, sued uh, Liddy alone for this story. And 
Um, the first case was settled to everyone's satisfaction, well, to our satisfaction. <laughs> so, uh, the second case, um, I lost on a technicality because even though I strongly disagreed and thought we had a good, strong case, the jury concluded after this was the second trial, the first trial ended without a, a decision one way or the other, a hung jury. But the jury in the second case said it wasn't clearly enough about the plaintiff. It, did, you know, it talked about uh, it, it, some, it referred to the plaintiff, but it didn't really libel her. And um, I, I don't know what to make of it. I thought it was, it was pretty clear. There was an argument they made. I thought it was weak. Um, Liddy had his fans just like people like that have their fans today. Uh, he was sort of a right-wing ideologue and a conspiracy thinker. And uh, I lost. Did that make you nervous, taking on a guy like that who, no, no, uh, I no. mean, were you looking over your shoulder every time you went to the parking garage? <laughs> uh, well, be, be candid, no. Uh, no, and I don't mean to say that there's there are not a lot of people who uh, are vulnerable, who are law enforcement judges. I mean, it's, it's, what's going on is terrible. Uh, but in my case, um, I did not feel that uh, I was in any danger personal danger and uh, what would I have done if I thought I was the personal danger? Uh, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a pleasant, no, and again, just, it was just a couple of days ago that um, Paul Pelosi was beaten by a, an ideologue uh, at his home in California. And this is just the, the spouse of a public official. And you say, you know, who's safe in this country? What's going on? And I have no idea. It is just scary. It is so scary. And, and you're right. And and I should point out, if if you're not familiar with David or his works, one of his other books was about one of his best friends in life. And that book is called uh, The Unexpected Scalia, uh, Conservative Justice's Liberal Opinions. So even though you guys didn't line up politically, you were the best of friends. We were close friends. We, I, I, we had dozens of dinners together with wives and uh, traveled together to Ireland and did a couple of other things. Went, actually went to baseball games and horse races. I, and I, I'll confess that I owned uh, one third interest or one quarter interest at different times of it in the racing stable, but that's another story. I was also wine and food editor of the Washingtonian magazine during much of this time, which is another story. But Scalia was, I thought, with, with a couple of exceptions, intellectually honest and very fair and willing to discuss things. And uh, we, we had some great times. David Dorsey, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. It's always good to see you, my friend. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed this. The book is Judicial Mayhem, and I can't recommend it enough. I love fictional legal thrillers. This one may be better than any of those. The subtitle is How Federal Judges Betrayed Their Public Trust. Uh, it's available from our friends at Headline Books at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, HeadlineBooks.com, wherever great books are sold. You can go in and ask for it by name. Again, it's Judicial Mayhem by David Dorson. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us today for Zoom into Books and the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by speakermatch.com. 
from our studios here in Washington, D.C. I'm Burke Allen. Go out there and make it a great day. Thanks for being here. Bye, everybody. That was excellent. Great job. Very interesting. That was good, David. Thank you very much. Yes, I stopped the live stream. I was trying to think of anything else to cover, but I think we covered a lot of ground. I yeah, think I think so too. And and I think, you know, and you know this, you've done a million interviews, but I think in most of these, you don't, if you get down into the weeds, you lose them. Right. But just the, you know, the sensational overtone of that story is going to make people want to read that book. Yes. You know? Okay. And if you put them in in the shoes of Lauer and they go, but there, for the grace of God, go I, then that's really the thing, you know? Um, and, and I'll have to tell you, and then I'll let you jump. I think it's it's incredibly um, ingratiating when you do these, when you say, I lost, I lost badly, and I did everything I could. Because that's so different than the way most people are today. Most people are, it's all me, and they pound the chest. So I, you know, I think that really brings, it warms you up to people. Don't you think, Kathy? I do, absolutely. And I know it's probably not easy, but it's a good thing. Well, hell, what, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. So then before I let you jump, David, they're trying to reschedule New York. Um, and they gave us the date of the 8th. Yeah. And so we wrote them back immediately and said, that's great, but that's election day. We're not going to get bumped again, are we? So, <laughs> so we're trying to get it in before you go out of country. So we'll right. let you know 100% okay. for sure. And actually, election day is not terrible because... Well, I mean, I mean, in a sense, well, unless all if, if, you know, if, if everyone else is going to be busy, but this is going to be recorded. It's not. That's right. And I just want to make sure they don't bump you because they're covering other stuff that day. Okay, or fair enough. That's good. I, well, I know, I'll let you know. Whatever they want, I'll do. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Kathy, thanks to you and Belinda, too. It's always good to see you guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. You all have a great week. Thank we'll you. do it. David, I'll talk to you soon. Very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, you guys. Bye now.